From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Uh, Very delighted to be joined by our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Padre? I'm just fine, thank you. How are you? Couldn't be better. Glad to be with you today. And uh, we're going to be opening up the phones in just a few moments here. Let me uh, give you the numbers now. You can jump on early. That number, 833-288-BWTN, if you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code, 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, openline at EWTN.com openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to put either Thursday in the subject line or Father Milady in the subject line. So, Father, today you would like to talk about the Transfiguration. Yeah. Well, we just recently celebrated the Feast of the Transfiguration, and I think it's a very important feast. For one thing, it's mentioned in all the evangelists, all the Gospels, And for another thing, it portrays to us who Jesus actually is. And also, it also is um, attested to who Christ is by all the different things that all religions use one way or another to uh, worship God. So first of all, Christ goes up this mountain, Mount Tabor, because human beings were accustomed to think about the places where they worshiped God as mountains. In fact, uh, in the Aztecs, as you know, they built artificial mountains on which to sacrifice the God. They were terrible sacrifices, but they built them nonetheless. And so this testifies to the fact that there's going to be a relationship special relationship with the new religion, with God. Then, of course, you have three sets of witnesses. So first of all, you have Christ discussing the scriptures with the representatives of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, Elijah representing the prophets, and Moses representing the law. And what, by tradition, are they discussing? Um, well, the tradition is that they were talking about the passion. In fact, we celebrate or we read the Transfiguration also during Lent because we need courage in order to experience our own suffering to get to Easter. And Christ, of course, clothes his very body now shines with divine light. And Moses and Eliab testify to that, too. Then you have the great representatives of the New Testament, Peter, James, and John, 
and of course one is the first pope one is the um the beloved disciple who's also called john the divine because he was so contemplative and then you have james who'll be the first bishop and then finally you have the greatest of witnesses of all the bright shining cloud which represents the holy spirit and the father speaks about the son he speaks a word and the word is the second person of the trinity this is I, my beloved son listen to him and the beloved emphasizes there also the holy spirit so in this small episode in the scriptures we see a full-blown treatment of who christ actually is because he's certainly human since the clothes and the body shine with light but he's not a human person he's a divine person and you remember that the apostles have various reactions depending on the the gospel in which this is proclaimed to this but in all cases they're astonished by the whole thing and then peter says you know let's set up three tents three mean places of worship or contemplation one for moses one for a lion one for you and then christ as you recall when they come to their senses and this um, testimony ends he tells them don't tell anyone of the vision until the son of man has been raised from the dead yeah because first of all he has to testify by the passion and basically the vision is given to us again as encouragement in the face of trial and difficulty with the idea that this is not the fullness of what we'll experience but it's a necessary road to it and in Lent we do this and in a similar way we think about it to, in the great feast during the liturgical year to give us courage to desire that final purpose of course today we celebrate the proto-martyr of Rome uh, not proto-martyr of the church that's Stephen but the first deacon proto-martyr in the church of Rome and that's St. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And you know, St. Lawrence was so filled with the aid of Christ that he actually could joke at his martyrdom. And also the reason he was martyred was a joke too. Because the Roman magistrate wanted the treasures of the church and the deacons were in charge of the temporalities in those days. So he told Lawrence he wanted to bring, to bring the treasures of the church and put them in the piazza in front of his palazzo, his palace. And Lawrence agreed to do that. So the next day he came and said, come out, I brought the treasure of the church to you. And when the greedy magistrate ran out, he found the blind and the widows and the poor and the orphans. Hmm. And he said, this is the treasure of the church. It's his people. Love that. And for which he was roasted on a griddle. Yes, yes. <laughs> you remember he said, turn me over, I'm done on this side. <laughs> One of the reasons why uh, we the first reading today is the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And that's invoked for us too. So during our own experience of difficulties, especially spiritual martyrdom to our own conscience, 
we need always to keep before our minds the transfiguring Christ who gave us a foretaste in a sense of heaven which will be our union with the three persons all right and we do thank you so much uh, for that. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian today here on EWTN. Hey, lines are open right now. If you've got a question for Father Milady, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, before we uh, go to the phones, let's take a quick question here from Bill, who emailed us. He says, uh, Father, what is the difference between the apostolic pardon and last rites? And who can give each of those? Well, apostolic pardon is separate from the last rites, mm-hmm. although it's normally given the word at the same time. And the last rites, and we don't even call it that anymore, as you know, extra function. We call it the sacrament of the sick. Mm-hmm. Although one of its purposes is to prepare the body for death, in the imminent danger of death or in articulo mortis. And as a part of that, a person who's confessed and gone to communion and lived a sincere, devout Christian life, though they receive the anointing of their faculties in order to encourage them to supernaturalize this, an additional gift on the part of the church is the apostolic pardon which is the fact that they will enter heaven. They won't have to go to purgatory. Okay. And we, we use the, the call of the apostolic pardon as a, a gift or a concession or whatever word you want to use conferred by the Pope. And it's normally given at the same time as one is dying. Okay, very good. Well, we thank you so much for that. And uh, if you have a, a, a an emailed question that you'd like to send up for for a future show, here is the address: openline at ewtn.com, just like it sounds. Openline at ewtn.com. Be sure you put uh, either Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian or Father Milady, something that will make sure that uh, on this end we can get the right question to the right host for Open Line because we do it Monday through Friday with a different host every day. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones for your live questions at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Again, those lines are open for Father Brian Mullady and the number 833-288-EWTN if you've got a question for him. 833-288-3986. Here's uh, something wonderful to tell you about uh, from EWTN Publishing. It's a great new book called 
Goodnight Jesus, a children's bedtime story by Kate Snyder, illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps the kiddos reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and of course, a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a great new book, Goodnight Jesus, a children's bedtime story, now available from EWTN Publishing. You can get it by going to EWTNRC.com, buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Well, we just got a call from Al in Connecticut, Father. Al says, uh, in back in 1960, why did so many people dread a Catholic presidency? What are your thoughts there, Father? Well, first of all, you have to remember this country was basically a Protestant country. Yeah. And it came mostly from England. And as you know, the English at the time were quite anti-Catholic because of the great revolution which occurred in which they threw out the Catholic monarch, Stuart, and brought in the Hanoverians, the Germans. And they're still with us today. Celebration like Guy Fawkes Day which was commemorated an attempt to assassinate James I by the Catholics, were celebrations like Halloween for them. And uh, so they all, and they also were influenced by Freemasonry. So they tended to look on having a Catholic monarch um, and or, in this case, a Catholic president as someone who would allow the Pope to rule our country. And that's why Kennedy was very clear that he had his conscience. Now, I think he was fairly nuanced in the way he did it and he mm. had good advisors yeah. about trying to explain it, that he was a Catholic, but he wasn't going to rule the country with the papacy. However, uh, many people still didn't believe it. And so they had a lot of problems, but... The Kennedys were influential enough financially and in other ways, so they managed to overcome that. And even though the election was contested, so it was the first time a Catholic had ever gotten so close to um, being elected and, in fact, was elected mm-hmm. president eventually. So that kind of broke the, the Catholic uh, prejudice, mm-hmm. sure. although... It's still with us today. I think the oldest and most difficult prejudice in the United States is anti-Catholicism. Because, you know, I mean, even to this day, if a Catholic says it, that somehow means that they're doing religion and not natural law and not a country where the separation of church and state is very important. I was just reminded of a book, I believe the title from uh, Edward Fazer, The Last Acceptable Prejudice or something like that. Is, is, Could be. Yeah, Catholicism. Wow. Well, there you go. And uh, thank you so much uh, from Al in Connecticut. We do appreciate your question. It's Open Line Thursday here on EWTN with Father Brian Milady. If you've got a question for him, the number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Here's a question now from Stephen, Father. He says, how can I answer the claim that 
it is a metaphysical impossibility that a real, Christ, a real Christian not work out his own salvation. Uh, I don't quite understand the origin of the statement, a metaphysical impossibility. Um, the only thing I know to be a metaphysical impossibility is the contradiction of the axiom of non-contradiction. Um, I, I don't understand the question. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. It seems to unify philosophy and theology in a way I've never heard it uh, unified before. If you mean that a person morally has to form themselves, well, that's something that you take up when you take up the question of the will. Mm -hmm. You have a free will. You have to form your free will according to the truth. And therefore, you have to participate in arriving at your ultimate end. But uh, I'm not sure, quite sure what has, that has to do with metaphysics. It seems more a question of ethics for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, Stephen, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Jeremy. When people say that the New Testament church existed before the New Testament scripture, they seem to imply that the church was more important than the word. The Old Testament was a primary source of faith for the Jewish world. Uh, so did that love of the word carry into the new church? Yes, of course. Uh, as you know, in our way of interpreting salvation um, in Catholicism, there are two sources of the word of God, two, two sources of divine revelation. One is scripture, so we love the word, but there's also tradition, so we affirm the living of the word and what the church has done mm -hmm. to demonstrate what the word means. Uh, we don't have a Bible religion, or uh, better to say, a religion of the book. We're not sitting there torturing over this book. For one thing, Jesus never wrote a book. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, he, oh, but he did preach. And his preaching was uh, communicated by others who then, when it became important to preserve certain truths about it, the Holy Spirit aided them to write it down. But uh, what, as to what came first, tradition came first because of the preaching of the apostles came mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there has been long discussions in several councils, especially following the Protestant Reformation, which was more important, and they couldn't decide. Both are equally important. You have to equally affirm both, Scripture and tradition. Now, of course, Scripture has a special place because it's the Word of God in itself um, in which the Holy Spirit aids the sacred author to express the truths of our religion to us in a very direct way. But the fact remains that what's not explicitly in scripture can be found in tradition. And in order to understand the tradition, you had to have reference to scripture mm -hmm. because that's where they wrote it down. So yes, we revere the word, but we more revere the person because the word is about the person and so is the preaching about the person. 
So both are equally necessary, and you can't play off one against the other. Jeremy, thank you so much for your email. Hey, the lines are open right now on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. If you've got a question, call now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Interesting question here popped up from uh, Ethan, Father. When did Jesus become self-aware of his divinity and humanity? Oh, that's the big question. (laughs) Well, he certainly was aware of his humanity, as any ordinary child would be. Mm -hmm. And so in the womb, I would say, as far as very rudimentary understanding of it. Uh But the question of the divinity is something that's been hotly debated even by the Orthodox. Now, I tend to the opinion of St. Thomas, which is that the moment Christ, scriptures say, for example, in Hebrews, from the moment Christ came into the world, he said, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. Mm-hmm. Well, he couldn't really say that if he wasn't aware of his divinity. And so I tend to the opinion that Christ in the womb from the moment of his conception, now maybe not with the fullness of understanding in his human intellect, but with enough to do moral actions. In other words, like we would do the age of seven, the Christ knew he was God. And also, uh, there's some opinions, even by Orthodox, highly recommended theologians, that Jesus did not really know who he was until his baptism in the Jordan. And that particular uh, theophany was made for him. This is ridiculous, in my opinion. Uh, it's very clear in the scriptures that that theophany is not made for Christ. He knows who he is. It's made for all the people looking on, on the part of uh, um, John's baptism. And I also find it very hard to believe that Jesus as a child could come home and have Mary say, by the way, son, you're the son of God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think he certainly knew that. You can see this in the, the famous difficulty of the uh, finding in the temple, the only thing related from Jesus' youth, and there's a reason it's related in the scriptures. Because remember, they uh, miss him on the way back from Jerusalem in the temple, and they look all through the caravan, they can't find him. So his mother and father go back to, you know, his foster father, Joseph, mm-hmm. go back, and they finally, after three days of searching, find him in the temple. And Mary says, you know, why did you do this? Uh, We sought you sorrowing for three days. Well, Christ isn't rebuking her because she certainly knows he's the Messiah. After all, she she got the Annunciation. Yeah. But um, the emphasis of the statement he makes is, well, how is it you sought me for three days? You know who I am. The first place you should have looked is the temple. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Where else would I be but in my father's house? So uh, I I tend to the opinion, which is actually represented by the devotion of the divine infant of Prague. And also, remember Eastern icons, if you look closely at them, mm. Eastern representations of Mary and Jesus have the baby with an adult face. That's right. And 
And the theological implication is that uh, he is um, maturely understands his mission, even when he's a child, a little baby. And that's because, you know, they have the Bambino Jesus, where he's just a little natural, ugly, uh, 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 cuddly baby. That goes in the Renaissance. Ah, very good. Yeah. Uh, Ethan, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, calls are uh, available for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady on Open Line Thursday, 833-288-3986. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And if you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. That's 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. An excellent time to call. Here's an email from Bryant now. If, uh, If sin and death entered the world with Adam and Eve then how is it that animals that existed before Adam and Eve, how is it that they died? Uh, The reason is because that's nature, and they are not in grace beings, and so they simply follow what their nature is. Whereas in man's case, it was a gift given to him Mm. because he was created in grace that he should not experience death or sin. Now, he could experienced death, but God um, preserved him from this. So the example for that, for instance, is in Christ's own life. You remember that God protected Christ in several occasions when people sought to kill him. The first and most interesting one in some ways is the Magi, you know, where Herod sends the people to kill the babies and Christ is protected. He's gotten out of Egypt by revelation from the Lord to Joseph. And then various times throughout his life, like the people in Nazareth, they wanted to kill him by throwing him over the brow of a hill, and it just as he passed through their midst and walked away. It was that external protection that God withdrew from Christ when he allowed him to suffer the will of his enemies on the cross. But the whole idea is that death shouldn't exist, not at least a painful death. It would be more like a sleeping. But in fact, it does. Mm. And so that's the reason. The animals obey a different law, a law of nature. They can't be in grace because they don't have an immortal soul. And so if a lion wants to live, he has to eat, and he has to eat flesh. And, and down, down the food chain, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Brian, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here is Nick now. How does the, or how did the angels have the ability to decide to turn against God? Does this mean that there's a chance we will turn against God once we're in heaven? Uh, the angels weren't yet in heaven. I see. When they, when they uh, turned against God. Uh, we have a time, both the, us and the angels, there's a time between our creation and our final fulfillment. Hmm. Now, in our case, it's a lifetime. And we can constantly convert and fall away. 
But in the angel's case, because of the nature of angelic being, uh, it was their first choice. In their first choice, they either chose God or self. And if they chose self, God just said, fine, you want yourself? Have it. All eternity. Mm. See how happy you are when that happens. Yeah, oh boy. And uh, so that's the origin of sin, because Satan refused to serve unless he could call the shots himself. Mm -hmm. And that's an image for what the primary nature of our sin is, too. But the difference occurs, first of all, between angelic nature and human nature. And secondly, once the angels are in heaven as us, then we can't choose not to be there. But um, uh, as long as there's a pilgrimage, Mm -hmm. the angels' case is just the first choice. In our case, it's all throughout our life. Then we have a um, ability to choose God or self. And in our case, it can fluctuate while we're still alive till we die. Once we die, though, our choice is fixed. Yep. Well, there we go. Appreciate that. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Love to talk with you today at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father, 833-288-3986. Father, this, uh, this email is a little bit lengthy here from Frank, but it's uh, pretty important. Frank says, My understanding of the Catholic doctrine of predestination is that whomever God predestined will infallibly be saved, and that God's decree of predestination is not predicated on our personal merit, but is purely gratuitous and mysterious. If, in order to be saved, one must be predestined by God, and God does not predestine, for example, John, then how is this different from God positively willing John's damnation, which, as I take it, is the Calvinist view of double predestination, which the Church rejects. That is from Frank. Yeah, uh, well, Frank just asked for a summary of the whole treatise on the doctrine of grace. (laughs) He sure did. Yeah, you touched every single theme. And I'm not sure I can do that for you in a short period of time on a radio show. However, let me say this. There's, um, God has two aspects of his predestination. In his first predestination, he predestines everyone to be saved. That's why he died on the cross. But as a part of that, he allows us his predestination of us. He foresees, but he also allows us to choose. So it's lost in the mystery of God why he helps some people to choose more than others. But still, we all have the cross present to us to choose it. And in this final predestination, that's where our destiny is finally determined. So God wills, first of all, that we all be saved, but he wills that we all be saved as human beings, which our free will is a part. He also wills to support us in our choice if we are open to it. So we don't cause our own predestination, nor do we cause, you know, we can't possibly desire heaven just on our own because it's a supernatural state. 
But we, what we do desire is to prepare ourselves to receive the fruit of God's grace. And if we don't, that's up to us. If we do, that's up to God. And in every meritorious action, no one merits uh, justification. Protestants were very clear about that, and so are we. Um, the first predestination, uh, the, the first justification is God moving the soul and the soul allowing itself to be moved by grace. But we do participate in merit, which is the second effect of grace, which God moves us, we allow ourselves to be moved, and then we move those faculties in us that for in our own lives, each in our own lives, are necessary for us to grow in charity. So in other words, in merit, there's two people that act. There's the Holy Spirit, and there's us personally. So again, we're not saying God in no sense is positively willing the salvation of anyone or rejection of anyone apart from the cross, which is a sufficient means for everyone to convert, but then and also ratifying whatever our choice is because we have a right to make it. But he does give us aids. For example, uh, he gave St. Paul the famous vision to convert. And he also, um, well, another example of someone whose conversion wasn't instantaneous but took a long time, but God still aided it, was St. Augustine through the prayers of his mother. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the apostles who lived with Jesus basically for three years who still didn't quite get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, through the resurrection appearances, they finally figure it all out uh, as far as what's involved in salvation. And then that's ratified in Pentecost. But, uh, you know, there's so much more you can say about this. Mm -hmm. But you need to know that there's a, um, a prevenient grace, which God predestines everyone to salvation, but then there's a subsequent grace in which our worthiness of that depends upon our free will even though God aids our free will by actual grace, too. Frank, thanks so much uh, for your email today here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Augustino in Ohio, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Augustino, what's on your mind today? Yes, I just have a question for the lady. Um, with, uh, you know, from eternity, God decided to create creation, and then some of the first creatures we created, I, I understand, were the angels, the, the light, you know, before the physical light was created. But uh, Lucifer rebelled against the plan of God, non-Servian, I will not serve. What I would like to know is, like, where can I read that? Uh, Fathers of the Church, uh, is, there, is there a document? Uh, like, I can specifically read that, you know, and uh, also, like, uh, that God was going to become men. That, that caused a revolt, right? So the original plan of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity is going to take flesh. He's going to become, 
that's not going to change. That's the eternal plan of God. He became flesh for the redemption after the fall of the creation, but the original plan was God was going to become man. Where can I read this? You know, uh, what I believe are the teachings of the church. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not sure of a specific text for the first one, but it's the common tradition of the church, and you'll find it in many theologians. Um, it's interesting that you talk about the angels as the light, because in St. Augustine's commentary on the literal sense of Genesis, he talks about that light as being the angels. It's actually the knowledge of the angels. The morning light is the knowledge of creation of the angels by um, infusion. The evening knowledge is through themselves. And so they are the first created. Then you have all the rest of creation, which in the book of Genesis, you know, has a progression. But, but that's merely an attempt to demonstrate that all of time and all the different created beings all come forth from the uncreated source. So um, the idea of man's rebellion, the idea that it's because of uh, uh, Satan or something being jealous, perhaps, about the incarnation, uh, that, I believe, comes from Christian reflection. Go now to Mark, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I'm two minutes away from her. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to know is, um, Hail Mary, full of grace, that's where we were brought up as Catholics, but now you hear a uh, highly favored one. Which is correct, and how do we know for sure? Okay. The literal text is kakaratomene, which means literally full of grace. The highly favored daughter comes with the King James Version. Ah. And is it basically an attempt to Protestants to lessen devotion to Mary? Mm. Um, now they wouldn't exactly say that always, but and, and you know it, sometimes you can really get the Protestants to realize what's in their scripture that they quote so much. I had a friend; he was an evangelical, very strong evangelical. And uh, so he asked me one day, he says, what's this Mary bit with you people anyway? <laughs> and I said, Bill, uh, you love scripture, right? Oh, yeah. Literal interpretation? Yeah. Source of truth? Yeah. I said, well, in the scriptures, all it does is say all generations will call me blessed. And that's all we're doing. Yeah. And he laughed looked for a minute and he said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, they... They have these knee-jerk reactions, but they haven't really thought about the thing too mm -hmm. much. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. And, uh, Mark, thanks so much for your call from St. Louis. Appreciate that. Uh, David in Houston called. He couldn't stay on the phone, but he did leave us with a question, Father. He says, how do I avoid getting complacent or moving backwards in my prayer life? Oh, well, that's a very difficult question to answer because every person's different. Mm. But one thing you have to do is take seriously the practice of your religion. So in other words, you have to go to Mass and you have to confess, do an examination of conscience, and seek to live a good Christian life. And uh, you're basically setting yourself up, especially if you're trying to live the life of the virtues, 
That's the foundation for all the rest. It's not the capstone. Charity is, of course, the capstone. Mm -hmm. But it's the foundation for all the rest. And um, I know that there's this whole thing about works and, and Protestantism, and it's true. We don't save ourselves by our works. But it takes two to cooperate with grace, the Holy Spirit and you. And at the end of our lives, we'll be rewarded by our personal cooperation in the grace of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 25, I was hungry and gave me to eat. I was thirsty and gave me to drink. That's all judged by works. And the interesting thing is, again, I asked my evangelical friend, I said, what did you do with that text? He says, oh, well, that's not, that text isn't for Christians. <laughs> wow. It's only for pagans. He said, Christians have the wide throne of judgment. Uh -huh. doesn't matter what they do as long as they accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Hmm. Well, that, it's an opinion, but that isn't what the Scriptures say. Yeah. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you for uh, your question there, David. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We have just a few more minutes if you want to uh, uh, try to squeeze in another phone call here, and that is uh, that number is 833 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. Stephen has an interesting question. How do I respond to someone using the refutation of the Donatist heresy to say that an ordained priest is not needed to consecrate the Eucharist? Uh, well, I'm not, I wasn't aware that's what the Donatist heresy taught. My understanding of the Donatist heresy is that they believed that if you apostatized, you had to be rebaptized. Mm. Okay. Um, so I really wouldn't know how to answer your question. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, Jim says, does it matter whether some of the Old Testament figures like Moses existed historically or if they're just stories to teach a lesson? Well, it's interesting that... Uh, you should ask that because Thomas Aquinas wrote a commentary on the book of Job and it was the first attempt to make a commentary on the literal sense of the book of Job in 1200 years of Christian history for various reasons. But he asked at the beginning of the book, was Job a historical person? And his answer is, well, it doesn't matter much for the truth of the book whether Job was a historical person or not. Mm. But he's listed with two other people who are historical. Yeah. And so it seems logical that he'd be historical too. Sure. And uh, regarding people like Moses especially, I don't think those are just edifying stories. I mean, that's the center of the Jewish religion, and it's absolutely necessary that you think that Moses was a historical person. Whether you accept all this things that were added in the Apocrypha or whatever, like the things that are in Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. <laughs> uh, that's another issue, but he certainly was a historical person. Quite a movie. And uh, thank you so much uh, for that question. Here is uh, Richard in St. Louis listening on the Great Covenant Network. Richard, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Father. A uh, quick question that's probably got a long answer, but is hell, is hell full or empty? Yeah. Uh, well, hell wouldn't be full, and it wouldn't be empty. For one thing, the demons are there. Mm. Uh, so as far as people, we're not sure who's in hell and who might not be. But 
uh, actually, since the purpose of the world, the reason God created the world is the glorification of God in Christ, when the number of the elect is filled up, then the movement of the heavens and the earth will cease. And that's the second, that's the end of time. So since that's true of positive things, it would also be true of negative things. Mm. We don't know how many people will be in hell, but we know if there are, that the number of the damned will be what corresponds also to when God created the world. Uh, and remember, you know, they say many are called, but few are chosen. Now, that's a, a Semiticism. What it means literally is many are called, but less are chosen. Mm. So, in other words, it could be one less person. Okay. But no one knows. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Of right. course, if you were Dante now, you put all <laughs> the people in hell that were mean to you. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> are you politically disagreed with? or uh, you had no respect for, or whatever. Uh Appreciate that. Richard, thanks for your call from St. Louis. Let's go to Patrick in Melbourne, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. I I was just uh, wondering whether or not there's anything wrong with attending either Mass, whether it's the Norvis Ordo Mass, uh, results from Second Vatican Council, or if I were to attend the traditional Catholic masses, uh, like through the SSPX Society of St. Pius. Okay, now you stack the question with the last <laughs> phrase. Yep, yep. Because you can go to a traditional mass without going to the Society of St. Pius. That's what the priest of Eternity of St. Peter is about. So regarding the first part of your question, no, there's nothing wrong with either one. But the SSPX priests they have very limited relationship with the Holy See. And, you know, both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict bent over backwards to try to get them to be in full communion with Rome again. And they always had another condition. (laughs) When the Pope would fulfill one, then they'd have another one. And, you know, they've also had a division themselves. Uh, Some people will deny any pope after Pius Twelfth. Some popes, people even deny popes before Pius Twelfth. Wow. Because of the Holy Week liturgy. Mm. Some people, I mean, they have a division among themselves. As long as the priest saying the traditional mass is in communion with Rome fully, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay. Patrick, is that helpful for you? Uh, yes, I believe it is. I, I just I, I I thought I understood that uh, maybe it was Saint. Uh, I mean Pope Paul Pope uh, Pope Paul II maybe that allowed a certain number of bishops to be consecrated to do the traditional mass, and I didn't know if those priests right, today that, are still doing that. Well, yes, but that's not the SSPX. They're in the priests of eternity of Saint Peter. Yeah, different organization. Patrick, thanks so much for your call. Here's one uh, from Matt, Father. What is the Catholic view of sexuality, and how does that apply to—I <laughs> know, big question. How does that apply to how same-sex attracted people should live out that sexuality? Well, the Catholic view of sexuality is that the male and female organs are meant to produce babies. Yes, sir. Uh, little, tr- I call little trinities. Okay. 
And so living it out means that uh, that's the normal way you do this. Now, if you happen to have a same-sex attraction, you're still like even a, uh, an ordinary normal, I, would, I hate to use the word normal because I know that's a big issue, an ordinary sexually active person, you have to do it chastely, which means you can't have sex just as a person who isn't married, who's heterosexual, has to live it without having sex. They have to be chaste until marriage. So, of course, the same-sex attraction people would never be able to be married in the Catholic way of looking at things. Uh, I realize the Germans disagree with this and a few other people, but fortunately the Catholic Church is not just Germany. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we have to look at the whole church and uh, what uh, we think. Okay. Appreciate that. And here's one final question from Jackie. A very interesting question. Why was Jesus baptized? Oh, now that's an in interesting question uh, and very important theologically. Jesus was baptized for several reasons, one of which is that to, it's not for himself. It's for the people who witness it. Hmm. Because remember, the Trinity gives a testimony at that time. Also, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. And he uh, is baptized for the edification and faith of the people watching it occur. Also, to approve the rite of baptism, which when he dies on the cross, will be the means that we enter into communion with the cross. And there are many, many reasons, but not because of himself. He doesn't need to be baptized himself. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Father, could you leave us with your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Father, hope you have a wonderful weekend. Uh, thank you for all that you do for EWTN. And I really appreciate uh, your, your personal comments today about uh, knowing, working with Mother Angelica. Uh, this has been a very special day for all of us here at EWTN Radio. Tomorrow yes. at the same time, it'll be our very own Vice President for Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, to ask yes. your, your questions all about theology, all about the teachings of the church. We are here for you 24 hours a day on EWTN. Until next time, I'm Tom Price. You have a wonderful day. See you. God bless.